so um, I'm writing a, um, a challenge for um, for the Rogers Institute next year, and um, the research I'm what I'm talking about today is really a kind of interim sort of look at the, at the work I've been doing for that. So I've been um, doing a lot of interviews and sort of surveys of the literature and you know, at, at a lot of the, um, the the data on, on, on this area. So that that's that's really um, the sort of basis of what, what I'm going to talk about. Um, so the starting point for me on this um, area, the, 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 the thing that struck me when I, when I started to think about it, is I was looking at our student cohort, because as I, as I said, I'm uh, in the journalism department at City University, which is, which is very big. And what is quite noticeable is the rapidly increasing disproportion in, in the student co cohort. They're overwhelmingly... Um, girls and the, the female students are taking journalism, which um, struck me as, as rather surprising and a number of my colleagues are, are, are commenting on this as well. Um, so I look at the figures for this starting in City University, which is where I am, and 25 odd years ago there were equal numbers, um, as you can see, of, of male and female students coming in. Um, this year, and I've put together the undergraduates and the postgraduates, uh, there are now twice as many, more than twice as many women studying journalism as men, um, which was something that is, is quite quite puzzling um, in many ways, or, or not puzzling. Um, and so I looked a bit wider, and I looked at the figures at um, the other big journalism schools in the UK, the Cardiff um, is one of the most important, and Sheffield and Bournemouth, and the, the same figures replicate themselves, and sometimes the disproportion is even more than that. Um, and you might say, oh, well, a lot of people, because that isn't the route necessarily to get into journalism. You don't have to study journalism. There's lots of other ways of, of getting into journalism. But so I looked at another study, which had looked at um, those students who work on a student paper when, when they're at university. So, okay, you might be studying English or, or whatever, but if you're going to end up in journalism, it's pretty likely that you're going to work on your student radio station or your student paper or something like that. At least shows some kind of aptitude. And there again, it's overwhelmingly, or way more girls do that um, than boys. So I thought that was, that was, you know, pretty interesting. And then the same figures also recur in, in the United States. In fact, it goes back much longer, this kind of overwhelmingly feminised um, study uh, uh, girls, there's even a book being, being written on it in, in the United States. So the question is, um, are we seeing a feminisation of journalism potentially, and what um, you know, what does that mean? Um, so the quest question from that is, given that there are all these students now study these these girls now studying journalism, um, what happens next? Where, where do they go after that? Um, but the, once you start to look at the data for that. It appears that there is still um, very much a, you know, what's called a glass ceiling. That that there's lots and lots of girls going in at the bottom, um, and at the, at the sort of entry points now, at a lot of the studies, for example, the Journalism Training Foundation, um, which is um, the biggest uh, study of, of journalists in this country, show that there's pretty much equal numbers going in at the bottom, and they're doing pretty much neck and neck throughout their twenties. But the higher you go up. Um, it's overwhelmingly then a, a, a male profession. There is a glass ceiling, and you might say, oh, "Well, that'll work its way through one day." But I mean, it's, it, the, the evidence is that even when it was 50-50, as I showed you in, in City University, um, you know, it's, it's nothing like 50-50 if, if you go up to the higher reaches of, of journalism. And um, 
that there's, a, for example, another study which is coming out next year by the European Union, which is um, looking at needed decision makers right across all of, all the countries in the European Union, and that again shows that it's a, a very very much um, once you get to the top, they're really looking at the sort of top layers of media decision makers in, in all the European countries. It, there, it's very much a, a, a male um, a male dominated area. So. Clearly, these, um, the feminization at the bottom at the moment is, is, not, is not working its, working its way through. Um, so I, I looked at another, uh, another way of, of, um, of seeing you know, who, who's, who's, who's actually producing in journalism and, and, and who's, who's getting on in journalism. Um, and for this, I used, um, initially, I used the, the work that was done by this organization in the UK called Women in Journalism. And last year, they did a survey on um, bylines. They counted bylines across a month or so. Um, all the national newspapers, and the statistic were that 78% of the, the bylines were, um, were written by men. This year they did another survey which was just of front pages, um, and that again came up with the same figure, amazingly enough, that 78% across, I mean it's this very disproportionate, I mean, I, um, if you go into, into the research which is on my website there, you can see that it's, it's differs between different different papers. And interestingly enough, the Financial Times is one of the, the best, where women are the best represented, so it isn't necessarily where, where, you, where you'd expect it. Um, and so going on from that, I did, I, I'm doing now some of my own research, some of my students are helping, helping me, and I've done a content um, analysis for October, and we're doing another one in, in November, and that's counting sort of week by week um, the bylines in, in, in different newspapers. We're only looking at five papers, not, not the whole press. Um, and you'll see here that if you, I've just picked out three because I've done pages full of figures. But if you look at the home news, for example, in the, in the Daily Mail, 14 stories written by men, one by women on Monday, Wednesday, it's a bit better. Sunday's a, Sunday's a bit better. If you go to the politics, um, there's only men writing politics on um, throughout pretty much all the days I've, I've picked mm -hmm. here. Um, but lifestyle is, is, is the other way around. Um, and that, I haven't even put all the categories in, but the total, the total came, came to this, um, which isn't really looking very good for all those, those women journalist students. Um, and surprisingly, the, um, it's not any better in, in a so-called liberal end of the market, um, the independent, uh, the figures here are not, not great either, if you look at the, the totals here as to the, the, the bylines, what, what men are, uh, bylines that men are uh, producing, the bylines that women are producing. Um, and then so another, so that's sort of work in, in progress, but um, that, that was, was quite an interesting um, revelation. Um, but then the, uh, the other area that um, I'm looking at, and, and I've started to do some, I've done a lot of interviews on and so on, is, is this whole phenomenon that women might go in at the bottom and they might be doing fine, um, but maybe either they're choosing to leave journalism or they're being um, pushed out of journalism. There's not, there's not a place for them later on. Um, and a lot of people do report. If you go around newsrooms, it's very much a sort of young young women's um, territory. There are very few elder women in, in newsrooms, both in broadcasting um, and and in the um, and in the press. And it was very very high profile. I mean, and, and women in journalism, for example, wrote wrote a, another report a couple of years ago called "The Lady Vanishes at 45." Um, but in, in broadcasting, there have been some very high-profile cases. This is the, the most high-profile, which, which is a woman who, who actually took the BBC to court because she thought she'd, she'd been pushed out as an, as an older woman. Um, but she isn't the only one. There's a, a lot of older news, women news radios that uh, have voiced, voiced this, this observation. So 
again, this this is something that that I am looking at, and where there clearly seems to seems to be an issue. But um, the the picture isn't all gloomy. Before I go on, I, I, I just I did also start to look at um, local newspapers because it's so far everything I've been talking about is national level. And if you look at no, local newspapers, for example, Northcliffe Media, which is one of the big um, uh, owners of, the, of local press in, in the UK, um, there you get a, a rather better picture that at the moment um, 27 of the, their newspapers are edited. Their local papers are edited by men, and under 11 are, 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 are um, edited by women. Um, but to get a sort of more of a snapshot of actually how um, women are doing in the media today in, in 2012, there's sort of two other things I want, I want to have a quick look at. Um, one of them was the, um, I hope you're all familiar, familiar with the Leveson Inquiry, which has been um, looking at, you know, it's kind of the great and the good of the journalists have been parading before Lord Leveson over the past year. And if you go through the, the list of all the witnesses, um, on that website, um, and this is only the journalism. I'm not. I've discounted all the actresses and the victims of phone hacking and the Dallas parents and all that sort of thing. But if you just look at the, the journalists, the editors, um, the regulators, anybody, or the former journalists, or anybody had, uh, or the owner, the proprietors, or whatever. If you if you do that count, this, this is what you come up with. Um, so that shows that certainly, as I say, this was pretty much a, a list of the, of the of the movers and shakers in British journalism. So that. That gives you quite an interesting um, insight. And then the other sort of snapshot I, I looked at, or, or just which came to my attention, was um, there's a new series of journalism awards um, which are being presented uh, next month called the British Journalism Awards. Um, and I took this off their website, um, which is a list of the, of the people that have been chosen, appointed to, to, to judge these awards. If you look down that list, <laughs> <laughs> You'll see there's one woman, Laurie Miles, there. But do you notice what she's characterised that? We don't know what paper she worked for. We don't know what she does. We don't know anything else about her. Like all the others we know which you know what they do, um, which paper they come from, they write or whatever. But Laurie Miles, all we know is that, that she's very much your kind of token token woman. Um, and here's a picture of the judges. Uh, <laughs> It's a mixed picture overall, was my first conclusion. Um, and the, the, the so-called glass ceiling, I would say very much, maybe the glass ceiling isn't there as traditionally was, but I would say that there's still what I would call a glass menagerie, or glass cage, um, which is really, in a way, what some people call the Mrs. Thatcher factor, that you know, there's been some high-profile cases, there's you know, one or two women have risen to the top, um, and therefore, you know, there's a huge focus of attention on that, um, and whenever you talk to anyone, they say, oh, but what about so-and-so? And, you know, there are, there are one or two very high-profile examples, but they're continually recited and they're continually um, uh, drawn to your attention. And in fact, I even said, um, I actually met Lord Leveson recently at a party, and I, when I'd just done this, this survey, and I said to him, you know, it's a bit shocking how few women came to talk to you about journalism. And he said, no, 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 there were plenty, there were lots, lots came, there was so-and-so and so-and-so, I said, yes, and, and then again, it's that impression that when there are women, they're very, very, like Mrs. Thatcher, incredibly visible, everybody knows about them, but actually, when you sit and do the, do the calculation, they're actually not, not that many. Um, and this is not just the case in journalism, this phenomenon, this kind of glass menagerie. Um, for example, in journalism at the moment, there's only one national editor of a, there's only one female editor of a, of a national newspaper. 
There used to be three. At some points over the past 10 years, there have been three. Um, these are all, nearly all, with one or two exceptions, editors of, um, of tabloid papers, which I'll talk about a bit later. Um, there's only ever been a woman editor of a broadsheet daily paper for three months in 1998, between January and April 1998. There was no woman editor of a, of a daily broadsheet. Um, but anyway, so there, was, there have been three at one time. At the moment, there's only one. But you get the same phenomenon in the civil service. There, four or five years ago, the civil service, the top rank of the civil service permanent secretaries, there were quite a few women uh, that they retired or moved on, um, and they're fewer now than they were a few years ago. And similarly, at the top of the um, Financial Times 100 companies, the chief executives, there were more women in that role um, four or five years ago, even two, three years ago, than there are now. So it's not this kind of trajectory of onwards and upwards and everything's always getting better and you know, if you just sit here and wait, it will be fine. So you know, it's rather more complicated than that. But the way I would characterise it now is not perhaps so much a glass ceiling as more of an elastic ceiling. And um, there are quite a number of surveys now which show that, that those women who do um, make it, not, not entirely, but the women who do sort of stay in these kinds of jobs and then rise up pretty high, are um, overwhelmingly those who don't have family responsibilities um, or they have somebody else Deal with, I mean, they, they have um, someone at home dealing with that, or, or they're childless um, in particular. And, and if there have been surveys done, the BFI did a big survey on this, and also the skill set on the creative industries. And um, in, in many areas, with the, the, the number of men in these sort of senior positions, it's an 80 20 split that 80% of them will have children. But women who do, the, few, the very few women who do reach those, those heights, it tends to be that 20% of them don't, don't have children. So, as I say, it's more of an elastic ceiling necessarily than a, than a, than a glass ceiling. So, so some women do make it. But the, the problem is that journalism, for all sorts of other reasons that I'm sure you're incredibly familiar with, does face very, very increased pressures at the moment. I mean, there's economic pressures on journalism, the, di the presses, pressures of a digital environment. I mean, that, that they, those sorts of things make it very, very difficult to do. If, if you work in those kinds of jobs, as many of you probably know, um, it's very difficult to, to do much else. And you know, the digital pressure that you've got to be tweeting and blogging and 24-7 production of uh, content um, means that anybody with other responsibilities to fit in is, is going to find it pretty difficult. Um, so it isn't so much, as I say, a glass ceiling, but it's, it's rather more a sliding glass door, is how I thought about it. That you're fine when you're you're inside the newsroom here and you know um, doing very well. But if if you um, then have other responsibilities um, and you you find it's very difficult to balance them, then you'll 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 find yourself exiting through through the glass door and finding it increasingly difficult, certainly to get back in at, the, at those those sorts of levels. So that that's that's really um, the the way I would. The way I would characterise, I would characterise it now, and it's this this kind of the the idea that women can't hack it as kind of full time staff positions, so they leave to go freelance, which is a very very common pattern. I've talked to lots and lots of women who are all, all, all doing that in lots of different ways. Um, but I mean, it isn't always necessarily somebody's ideal choice. I mean, freelance is pretty insecure. You never know whether well, you might not know where the next job's coming from. The pay rates are not that great. Pay for freelancers now, in absolute terms, and my relatives, in absolute terms, is less than it was in, in the early 1990s. Um, so, which might be maybe a factor that it's become feminized, who knows. But um, the, 
you know, the, the, the freelance route, which I'm going to talk about a bit more now, um, is, is not everybody's choice necessarily, but it, but it may be that, that people feel that they just, just can't manage it as, as a sort of full-timer. Um, but if women do stay, um, so I'll talk about the freelance route a bit, a bit more, but if, if women are in staying um, uh, within, within the within the, um, the sort of full-time sort of permanent staff. The other thing that's very, very noticeable is that well, until now I talked about what we call vertical segregation, that you get far fewer women at the top than at the bottom, that's vertically segregated. But the other very noticeable phenomenon, of course, is what we call um, horizontal segregation. And uh, there are numbers of areas where you get very, very few women. You get this sort of dispersion where women tend to do one job and, and men tend to work in other, other areas of the press. Yeah. So, for example, politics is one of them, and even much more so than I thought when I started to look at the numbers. I think if you remember back those figures I showed you of the content analysis of who was actually writing the politics for the Independent and the Daily Mail, that was overwhelmingly men. But if you look at something like the, the top 50 political reporters here, which came out in September of this year, so Andrew Marr is number one, and Philip Webster, and Joe Murphy, okay. Parker, Adam Bolton, number six is Nick Robinson, Simon Walters, Patrick Wintour, and on we go. Down, 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 down. And here we are, number 16. We've got the first, the first woman there, the chief political correspondent of the Financial Times. But then we have to go a long, long way down after that. Um, we have to go into the, into the six, yeah, there we are, 36. Rachel Sylvester, Commerce of the Times. So that gives you some idea of how this is very, very much a male area, you know, that this kind of horizontal segregation of politics is, is obviously very much something that, um, that, that is reported by men. Obviously sport, I'm not even going to bother to show you the figures for sport. Because, uh, I mean, you can do this and you can click through later if you want, but I mean, that's even more so. Um, but it isn't only, I mean, those, that, that's a pretty obvious area, but what was surprising when I started to look at it, and the other area that I found that's very, very much um, uh, uh, man, man, male journalists pre preserve is the um, comment pages, and is the, the op-ed, what the Americans call the op-ed. Um, and I came, I mean, I've done some interviews in, in this country, and I, some of these comment editors said, oh, but it's so difficult to get women to, you know, they won't have an opinion, and they always feel they don't know enough, and they, when you're ringing up and try and do something, they, you know, they, it's much easier to get men to do it, they're much more responsive. But then I came across this um, project in the United States called the Op-Ed Project, and if you look here, it's the same, the same phenomenon there, if you look across the New York Times and Washington Post and kind of thing. So that, again, um, Op-Ed and comment is something that is very much a, um, uh, a male preserve, whereas you get all these kind of what they call the pink ghettos, the areas which are, you know, the sort of fluffy lifestyle areas which are very, very predominantly um, uh, women's areas. Um, and so the way I characterise that is the, kind of <laughs> the news hand and the features, features bunny. And if you talk to lots of women journalists, they overwhelmingly will, will tell you about this, that either choosing to go to features because it's a it's an easier life, if you've got other things going on in your life, if you've you know got other commitments, um, or sometimes being forced to go to, you know towards towards the features end. Um, and that's this kind of vert, um, horizontal segregation is, is really really a, um, you know kind of overwhelmingly a, um, a problem and something which which really needs addressing. 
Um, so going back to women, not, not just sort of choosing these different areas, but what about going the whole sort of freelancing, kind of leaving the staff position altogether? This is um, a woman called Gabby Hinsliff, who was the political editor of The Observer. She left um, and became, went freelance uh, and said she, she really couldn't. I mean, she was a very, very good political editor, very highly rated, but she, she just sort of said it was too much and she couldn't, she couldn't do it. Having a, fa having, having a family. However, and, and so people know the Observer's a weekly paper. Uh, oh, sorry, yes, it's a, it's a Sunday, a Sunday um, broadsheet, yeah. Um, and uh, so, but what is very interesting, what I've observed here, is that it's not all necessarily you kind of, oh, you know, what a you know miserable life, you go freelance and you just have to sort of try and file the old thing from home, which is probably what would have been the case maybe sort of, I don't know, 20, 20 years ago. But what's really become very interesting is that quite a lot of these women who have left or had to leave or decided to leave or whatever like her have become incredibly successful by reinventing themselves as a brand. Um, and she is now really successful. I mean, she's got 22,500 followers on Twitter. She's all over the place. She's really kind of colonised this area. I mean, she still writes on politics, but she sort of does it from a very particular perspective. So this kind of rebranding re yourself, um, which I've noticed, um, uh, and I've got an image right here, um, is, is something which is, you know, pretty... Um, you know, well, not everybody's managed to do it, but, but quite a number of women have managed to do that. And it's a really interesting phenomenon. Um, and I'll just give you a couple of the examples of people I've talked to who, who've, who've um, done this. One of them is she was this Judith O'Reilly was a journalist on the Sunday Times, um, education journalist. She's now um, reinventing herself with this blog, Wife in the North, and again, very successfully written books on it. Um, her blog is very, very well known, very well read. You know, thousands of followers on Twitter and whatever. Um, and you know that she's obviously done done pretty well out of it. Um, and then a younger woman here, who's Claire McDonald, who I interviewed, who, who was doing pretty well on the Times. She was a deputy section editor, um, and her sister was also a broadcaster. Mr. Sister, um, and they did really. Uh, sorry, she was, as I said, doing really well on the Times. She had children, just felt the sort of pressures on her, the, the demands of the newsroom were too much. She left and set up this. Um, Thing, crumbs to, uh, about feeding your family. Again, doing really well. She's branded it. It's got so she's got various deals. She's got to Sainsbury's now, that kind of thing. Um, and you know, potentially making quite, quite a lot of money out of it. So that's quite interesting. This sort of whole branding yourself as a you know through your content like that. Um, and then another woman from the Times um, was Jen Towers, who also um, was a pretty successful journalist when she was on the Times. She's left and she's now founded something called Brit Mums, um, which is an uh, amalgamation of 4,000 mummy, what are called mummy bloggers. There's a huge industry out there for these mummy bloggers. She's brought a lot of them together and, you know, done these sort of corporate deals, that kind of thing. She has this very successful conference every year, um, has deals with, with, as I say, with, with uh, sponsors and that kind of thing. I mean, so pretty carefully selected. I mean, they're quite careful. It's not just sort of taking, you know, money from whatever, but, but it's quite interesting how she's made that work, and she's now, now doing really well out of this. So that, um, you know, is another, is another route into freelance which didn't exist before, and, a number, and particularly this whole sort of colony of the, of the money blocking is, um, you know, it's something pretty interesting. So, the last thing I really want to address is, does it actually make any difference? Why, why should we bother um, if there aren't so many women in journalism or reaching the sort of higher reaches of journalism, you know, what, what's, what's the problem necessarily? 
Um, and I would argue there that, I mean, this is so far what I've, the, the sort of headings that I've, I've sort of started to think about. One of them is this whole sort of academic debate about the so-called feminization of news. Um, there's a lot of debate in the literature that you know, new, a lot of news content now has moved towards um, sort of more of the lifestyle, confessional journalism, all this kind of stuff. Um, and the, the debate there, quite interestingly, is what came first? I mean, did we get this kind of lifestyle, you know, particularly the Sunday papers, if you see the endless lifestyle um, uh, parts to them, did we get the, the lifestyle first? Or is it because there were more women journalists coming in that there's more of that kind of lifestyle content? Um, and the argument there, I would say, is that it was really, you know, down to proprietors looking in, into this battle for female readers. They wanted more female readers. They wanted people to read their papers because women buy things. Women go shopping more. Um, if you can get to female readers, advertisers are very happy, and you know you've got a sort of you know. Um, uh, golden possibilities there. Well, not golden, but at least that—that's a way of kind of keeping, you know, um, keeping things afloat. And quite interestingly, from that is that the most of the women, the few handful of women who have risen to become editors of national papers, have been women who've come up that route, who've come up this kind of lifestyle route. Particularly Sunday tabloids—they've—they've. Um, they've been successful in them. There's an example of a woman here, she was called Eve Pollard, who was the um, editor of the Sunday Mirror for, for a number of years. She was actually called the killer bimbo of Fleet, Fleet Street by, by the other press. Um, but, but she's typical of the, the, this handful of women who've come up that route. They were in magazines, they know, know a lot about that kind of end of journalism. And that's where, they, where they've succeeded. So, you know, it does make a difference, you know, this kind of content debate is, is, is um, quite relevant. And um, the, sort of going on from that, there is, again, in the literature, there's, a, there's an academic, uh, not just in the literature, but there's a lot of, lot of argument now, a lot of um, surveys are being done, this whole business about subjects of news. I mean, there's a lot of, um, I won't go into all of that now, but there are a lot of work is done now showing how um, few women are actually depicted in the news. Um, there's, for example, um, Broadcast uh, magazine have got a big campaign on this now on expert women. They're monitoring the Today programme um, and the news every night to show how few women are actually depicted in the news, how few women are included as experts. Um, there's lots of women there as you know, victims uh, when they're featured in the news, but but they um, they've done a survey on this. Women in journalism have done another survey, um, and there's a lot of academic literature on this as well, showing that um, it's often a kind of eight again sort of eighty twenty split that the the subjects of the news um, are eighty in many cases serious subjects. Now, aside from when people are um, you know. Just, just there for, for kind of having a pretty picture. Um, serious subjects in the news is kind of eight, roughly across a lot of these surveys, around 80, 80, 20 split. And it's the same in a lot of other countries. I mean, this, this, this research has been done across. The worst one I came across was actually Cambodia. And Cambodia has got, there's more men in the population in Cambodia than women. Um, but in Cambodia, only six, if you do a content analysis there, only 6% of the stories feature women or about women. In, in, so that, that's the worst I've come across. But the, the point is that the, there's, there is academic work which shows that if you have more women writing the news, producing the news, then you're more likely to get women featured in the news. They're more likely to use female sources and women as, as experts to consult. 
Um, and one example that a lot of the academic literature focuses on is this newspaper here in Sarasota in Florida, which um, for a while has had a, a woman managing editor, a woman um, proprietor, a woman editor and so on. And there's been quite a lot of um, uh, academics have flocked to Sarasota to do studies there to show does it make a difference of the way that the news is told. And um, their answer was by and large it does make a little bit of a difference. Um, so. And the, the, the last point that I, I want to look at, which I haven't done much on, which I'd like to talk to some of you about as well, is this whole business about sort of international comparison about some of the points that, I, that I've just been making. Um, as I said, there's this um, Europe, big European study coming out next year, which I've talked to people working on that. Um, there's a big survey done by the International Women's Media Foundation, which was, which was almost 60 countries. Um, and Sort of, I was looking at the whole business again about low pay, low status, does it translate across countries? Um, and the most interesting thing that I've come up with so far, um, which is, I find pretty fascinating, is that Eastern Europe is an exception to a lot of the things I've been talking about. In Eastern Europe, um, women predominate throughout journalism at pretty much lo lots of levels. Um, and I find that very interesting. And I talked to some I mean, I haven't really gone into this very much yet, but I have talked to women in Eastern Europe and said, well, you know, why is that? Why, why should this be such a feminized, feminized profession? Um, and their answer is that it's, it's historically been a very low status profession in, in Eastern Europe, which is a bit worrying, and, and low, low pay. Um, but that, that I thought was quite interesting. It's also interesting to see whether, whether that, that's in the process. I mean, it has changed in, in East Germany. It used to be a very feminized profession in East Germany. It's, and, and that's changed since, since reunification. But still, if you go to the former Baltic states, and if you go to countries like Bulgaria and so on, it's very much a, a, a female profession. So um, that, in a sense, brings me back to where I started with the, um, with the students and the female students. What does that mean? Does that mean some intent for the status profession, or is, you know, is there some hope that, you know, that it will be a feminized profession, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's going to be a low status one in the future? Thanks very much.